Cecil Carson has kindly agreed to come and read our reading from Revelation tonight. Cecil. The reading tonight is taken from the Re Revelation chapter 2. I'm nearly sure in the few Bibles, 1, 2, 3, 4. Yes, it is. Revelation chapter 2, and we're beginning at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there <coughs> that hold this doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And the Lord will bless us, reading surely. I've had a, a really bad weekend, and it's to do with football. For over 60 years, I've supported a football team called Glentoran. Through thin and thin, I may say, and they were beaten again yesterday, 2-1, Bala Mallard at the Oval. My other team didn't lose yesterday, simply because they weren't playing. They've lost most weeks as well. That's um, Sunderland, I whisper it, Sunderland. And I'll not even mention Ulster. I say that because Eugene Peterson says you can sum up the whole of the book of Revelation in just two words. God wins. And sometimes you hear preachers say, you know, if you forget everything else tonight, please take that away with you as you face tomorrow and the next week and the future. God wins. All right? Let's pray. Jesus, Lion of Judah, Lamb upon the throne, we have been bringing you our praises for you are worthy. You have won the battle for this world at the cross where you died. We praise you. So again this evening we come to sit at your feet and we sit with these people who first listened as this letter was read worn down by spiritual warfare, hanging on to the faith by their fingernails. And Lord, it can be like that for each one of us and sometimes for a church. 
And so we pray that your Spirit would come and help us, that this pastoral letter will sustain us when we too experience testing and temptation and trial. Please, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, restore our strength for the fight. And we pray in your mighty and merciful name. Amen. So this is the third of the letters to the church at Pergamum. And um, I've been asked to speak under the heading of Pergamum, the compromising church. One of seven letters to the church. So think church for a moment. And here's the big picture within which we look at this letter. This is my spiritual formation Bible. And at the beginning of each book, uh, I find these words. The aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God himself at the very center of this community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. The Bible traces the formation of this community from the creation in the Garden of Eden all the way to the new heaven and the new earth. So we come to think about this church in a city called Pergamum over in western Turkey. At the beginning of the Bible, uh, we, we, from Genesis to Revelation, we have God calling out this new community. But you find in the Old and New Testament, there's a sharp contrast between God's new community, the church, and the rebel world in which the church is placed. So you have, for example, in Jude 3, the church is called to be true to the faith once delivered to the saints, keeping the faith. And that seems to me to be the issue here in the church in Pergamum. So I'm going to pick it up, some words in verse 13. And uh, Damien spoke about this last week, how Jesus says in each one of the letters, I know, and most of them I know your deeds, but this one is, I know where you live. You know, if you meet someone for the first time, you're having a conversation, you never be asked, well, where do you live? And here's where I live. And the word live here speaks of a permanent and settled place. Pergamum, the ancient capital, capital of the Roman provincial Asia, city where art, culture, and learning, told that it had a library of 200,000 books, belongs to the Roman Empire, not by conquest, but by choice, the seat of Roman government in the province of Asia. Behind the city, there's a, a cone-shaped hill which rises to 1,000 feet above the surrounding valley. A wee bit like Rathfryland on the hill, if you know you drive from the moorns towards Rathfryland, you can see it from a distance. 
up there in the hill. And the hill at Pergamum was covered with heathen, heathen temples. It's a pagan capital of the whole area. And Jesus says, I know where you live. And I know, he says at the end of verse 13, I know where Satan lives. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm aware of your intimidating environment. I'm aware how difficult it is for you to be a disciple of mine in Pergamum, where Satan lives. George Carey, former Archbishop of Canterbury, picked up that thought when he says, the wilderness was seen by these first Christians as the place where Satan dwelt. You don't have to travel too far to find it. It's a place where little grows, survival is hard, and death is. That's Pergamum. I think when Bill spoke to um, one of the letters, he had a number of commentaries. One that I found helpful is by a man called the Reverend Darrell Johnson. And it's his title, I think, is important. He entitles Revelation, Discipleship on the Edge. So you see, Revelation isn't about looking into a crystal ball, revealing weird secrets that'll help us escape the harsh realities of life. Revelation is a down-to-earth manual on what it means to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus in kingdom living on the front line in the midst of an oppressive culture, first century and 21st century. So you have your Bible open. We're going to have a look at this letter. First of all, we have verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. The symbol of Pergamum was the sword. Rome gave Pergamum the right of the sword, as they say, that is the power to inflict capital punishment. And in the Bible, the sword signifies God's judgment. The metaphor uh, is in a messianic context in the prophecy of Isaiah, not give you the references, but it points us to spiritual reality. And spiritual reality is the kingdom of God's loving rule, which Jesus brought when he came down from the heavens, and Christ, our reigning, returning king the one with real and ultimate authority in heaven and on earth, and who puts his church with authority over the world. You'll see this when you come to the next letter, where John says, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. We will reign with him in the new earth heaven that is coming when he returns. 
So we come then to what the evil one thinks of that in verse 13. I know where you live. We've had that. Where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness or martyr in the other translation, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now look at this. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Pergamum is the central powerhouse of pagan cults in the day. Satan, we know, is our adversary who opposes God and the church of God and this little church in Pergamum. And his aim, of course, is to destroy God's salvation project. Throne. He has his throne there. So we need to be reminded that Satan is powerful. But listen, he's not original. He uses here against this little church the weapon he used against the church last week, the crude weapon of persecution. And he uses the Roman occupiers of Pergamum to persecute God's people. In Pergamum, there was a grand Roman temple. It had been there for over 100 years. The reigning emperor Domitian at this time was the first Roman emperor who demanded that the people of the empire honor him as Lord and God. Emperor worship is indeed the fastest growing religion of the time, we are told. And here's the big question. Will these disciples of Jesus living in Pergamum be true to the faith? That's the question we, we got from Jude verse 3. Well, here is um, Jesus' report on the church. Verse 13 Despite the fact that Satan has his throne and lives among you, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. They kept the faith magnificently by the grace of God. And so they were bringing in the kingdom of God by sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And he names just one, this man Antipas, the first martyr of the Roman province of Asia. Tradition has it that he was roasted in a brazen bowl. So we had quite a lot on this good teaching last last Sunday evening, when we come to Pergamum, there's an even greater danger, a more subtle strategy of Satan in this place. So let's look at verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin 
by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Enter Satan's agents of destruction inside the church, not coming from the outside, the Nicolaitan sect. Name comes from two words meaning conquer and people. There seems to be a party in the church which is advocating compromise with the pagan culture around. They've already been mentioned because they, they are active in the church in Ephesus. You'll find that in Ephesus in Re- Revelation 2.6. And if you go forward to Revelation 12.9, you find that one of the disguises of Satan is deceit. The de- devil is the deceiver. He prefers poison to gelic night. And here he uses the false teaching of the Nicolaitans to subvert the church with enticement to immorality and idolatry. Balaam is mentioned in verse 14. You find his story in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. He is the prototype of these false teachers Balaam was the Old Testament compromiser of the people of Israel. And the story is that he was hired by King Balak when Israel were traveling through the wilderness to lead the people astray from God and into idol worship and sexual immorality that went along with it. You'll find that in Numbers 25. Satan is powerful, but he is not original. So you see what he's now doing. He's presenting a view of reality in terms of food and sex. It's okay for you. You're a follower of Jesus, that's fine, but you can go along to these unholy festivals. It's okay to put a pinch of incense in the flame of Caesar's shrine. And you know, when it comes to sexual morality, it's your body. And what you do with your body is your business. Everybody's doing it. Go with the flow. But the truth is, you see, that behind the idols lurks the presence and the authority of unseen forces of evil. Now, how do we understand the Nicolaitan uh, thing? It's not a headlong dive into pagan practices. It's more like, you know, a deadly virus. Christians slowly but surely endorsing the political, social, and cultural norms of Pergamum. And they're wandering deeper and deeper into the wilderness. And Christians have been doing that from generation to generation right through to the 21st century. You go back to the 20th century, you remember how the German Christians betrayed the faith by too readily endorsing the culture of Nazi Germany, at least most of them. What about us? We too live where Satan has his throne. 
What does John, the John who wrote the Revelation, say in 1 John 5, 19? The whole godless world has the power of the evil one. We're told that ours is a postmodern pluralistic culture where ideas, trends, and the plausibility of secular dogmas are commended by wall-to-wall media, day in, day out. We too live in East Belfast among all sorts of what Peterson calls ragamuffin idols with potentially destructive power. Here's seven S's, seven idols. Sex, shekels, success, science, sport, stomach, and most of all, the great God self. These handicrafted godlets are just one more human attempt to to avoid giving our worship and our homage to the one true and living God. You know, our minds can be so quietly and so steadily colonized until it can happen to us what happened to these people in Pergamum. We are colonized, we come lax, we compromise, we don't see it, we sleepwalk into it, we lose ground to the enemy, and we're hardly even aware of it, giving ground inch by inch to Satan. And that's wilderness time in the church, at least in the western part of the church. Verse 16, what does Jesus say? Repent, therefore. Otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Stop this easy endorsement of your culture. It's idolatry. It's immorality. That's what repentance means. Doing it about turn. You cannot have a foot in both camps. Turn back to the strong man, Jesus, who has bound the strong man, Satan, Jesus' little story. Otherwise, I will fight against these people with the sword. In the other letter, Jesus says, I hate the Nicolaitans, and I will now fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What does that mean? I will fight against them with the weapon of my word. The kingdom of God works by words. So Jesus says in verse 17, he who has ear to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Listen carefully, he says, to what I'm saying in this letter, to this indispensable information, for it will tell you, young and old, how to keep the faith, how to say no to the culture of the day. 
and we heard someone this morning in another church, and she talked about her little granddaughter and her little granddaughter growing up in this generation, how things would turn out for her in the future. Well, that little girl's in the church, and we have children. We have young people in this church and older people as well. And we need to know how to continue the fight against the evil one. We need to know how to do it. And we don't do it by gritting our teeth. I'm not throwing out a challenge this evening because I hear so many challenges. And I'm saying within my heart, and I'm saying to Doris in the way, well, I wish I had been told this morning how to do it rather than having another challenge. Not by mustering up willpower. I will not give in to temptation. That's what I call the direct route. And brothers and sisters, the direct route does not work. But here's what does. Remember who you are. You are disciples of Jesus, who just happened to be this, that, and the other during the week. You are disciples of Jesus Christ on the edge. And a disciple is someone who has simply, well, has trusted Jesus, confidence in Jesus as Savior and Lord, but from the word go, has become a disciple, someone who wants to be with Jesus, in order to become like Jesus. It's as simple as that. And here, learning from him how to face the temptation to compromise. So how did Jesus do it? What do we learn from him? You remember when Jesus took the battle to Satan in the wilderness? What did he do? He engaged in certain spiritual practices or exercises which kept him close to his center in the Father. What were they? Solitude, getting away from people and noise to be alone with the Father. And John, by the way, when he wrote this book of Revelation, was in enforced solitude. Prayer with fasting, fasting just another way of praying, abstaining from food or whatever, to focus on what is essential, that is feasting and feasting on God. So you see, we engage in these practices, we watch and pray, which, which then keep us connected with the Father and create channels in the inner life to receive grace and mercy and the empowering presence of the Spirit within. That's the indirect route. And it works because it's the way of Jesus. So we then, by His grace, become the kind of people who hold the line, who keep the faith, and it's in solitude and silence that Jesus heard the Father's word, the voice of the beloved. So what is the Father's word? 
here in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Pergamum. Well, and these words can be a bit puzzling. To him who overcomes, here's the promise in verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. I will give him hidden manna. Well, of course, this reminds us of how God fed the Israelites on the wilderness journey. Manna was a form of physical substance, unknown in nature, but produced by God's action in the Word. We're told that in the first century there were current expectations among the Jewish people that manna would descend from heaven again when the Messiah comes. A couple of references to that in Psalm 78, 24 and 5. The King has come. The kingdom of God is near, he said, with his coming. And of course, he overcame his adversary and ours on the cross where he died. So what does that mean for us this evening if we do struggle in the life of discipleship? It means that Satan is a toothless bulldog. He'll growl, he'll intimidate, but he has been defeated. John says it in 1 John 3, 8. And finally, he says it again, Satan will be destroyed, Revelation 20, 10. So when all is said and done, we can sum up Revelation in just two words. God wins. Great, yeah. As for now, we are, as David says, Psalm 23. We are in the presence of the enemy, but even there, he prepares a table for us. So we sit and eat at the banqueting table of King Jesus. We feed on him who is our hidden manna as we journey through the wilderness of this life. He is the bread of life, he says. So he nourishes, sustains, and strengthens our inner life, enabling us to keep the faith, to keep going on, and to overcome. That's the first gift. And the second one is, I will also give him a white stone with a new name on it, or written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, there are nine interpretations of this white stone. So it'll take me about, no, I'm just going to take one, all right? And I'm going to link this one to the hidden manna. In Roman times, white stones were used as engraved admissions to a banquet. This was your admission ticket, but it was a white stone. With a new name. So what is this new name? C.S. Lewis believed it may indicate our unique ability to worship some particular aspect of the glorious character of our God. 
which aspect would come to mind as we go through this letter to the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2. And St. Patrick has a very interesting comment on this. And this is our Jesus. He says, The Lord of the universe so humbles himself that for our sakes he hides himself under the little form of bread. Isn't he wonderful? I am gentle and humble in spirit, is not what he says in Matthew 11. So you see, take these two things together, these two promised gifts, the hidden manna and the white stone flag up two words that become the theme of grace in the Scriptures, food and banquet. We have in Jesus a worldview of abundance. As he says in Matthew 26, in the kingdom of my Father, whispering your name and my name. You are my beloved son, daughter. With you I am well pleased. That's our spiritual identity, which we have in the midst of it all, and especially in the thick of the battle. The identity that Jesus received, of course, at his baptism, and the reason why Jesus withdrew again and again into solitude and silence, spiritual retreats, to be with the Father, was to receive again and to reaffirm his spiritual identity as the beloved Son, servant of the Father. So watch and pray with fasting, perhaps. Pray about that. Think about that. Being cloistered with Jesus, living in his loving presence 24-7, and from the resources of his presence. And then by his grace, he will shape us into the kind of people who don't do compromise, overcomers, who can say with Jesus, Jesus in the upper room, John 14, 30, the prince of this world has no hold on me. It's this that made Jesus invincible. The ruler of this world has no hold on me. And it makes us invincible too in him. So to take Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, God, the victory is ours. God makes it ours by our Lord Jesus Christ. The compromising church. Some words to finish before I pray of Amy Carmichael of Donovar. From subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, not thus our spirits fortified. Not this way went the crucified, 
from all that dims thy Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver us. That's it. Let's pray. I'm sure as the the Spirit would move among us and within our hearts, he has been saying different things to different people. Just to hear again this evening those two words, God wins. Or perhaps a line from Amy Carmichael's prayer, from a subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, not thus our spirits fortified. Not this way went the crucified. From all the dims I calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver us. Perhaps you'd want to take some words and make these your prayer. Lord, I ask for a precious wilderness glimpse of your kingdom, power, and love. Thank you for understanding my frailties the fluctuations of my faith, the utter foolishness of so much I have done and continue to do. I thank you for the promise of power to battle against the principalities and powers of evil and to carry me when I am weak on eagle's wings. I cry to you for help. Please show me how to develop your strength, grace, constancy, and wisdom for the battle. Keep before me the vision of victory, your victory over the evil one on the cross, and help me to see the enemy's attacks from this perspective. And finally, Lord, may you be satisfied with the travail of your soul for me. I pray for your love's sake. Amen. Let's pray. Be assured of the Lord's blessing upon you as you leave here this evening, for you are his personal investment. And now may the reigning King, Jesus Christ, protect you from the wiles of the evil one, May he keep you from being squeezed into the mold of this world. May he empower you with 
all the spiritual benefits of the citizens of heaven and make you more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the name of Jesus, who defeated sin, Satan, and death. Amen.